right, 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to continue our study here of this wonderful passage by Paul, all about the resurrection, focusing on different aspects of the resurrection. And, and this is really Paul's final argument um, against those that deny the resurrection. If you remember, Paul's been sort of giving us different arguments about the resurrection. The first week we looked at in the first 11 verses, uh, he presented sort of an argument from history, right? According to just history, the church, uh, the, the Old Testament scriptures, the eyewitnesses recorded in the New Testament, and just the common message of the gospel, um, that, that all those things were great proof for the resurrection of, of Christ. And then he moved into a logical argument based off of that uh, foundation. And so if there is no such thing as a resurrection at all, then he went through the seven consequences, if you remember that, of, uh, of the, that kind of idea. And, and one of them would be Christ himself wouldn't even be raised. And boy, that would put us into a, a certain a world of, of hurt. And then last week, we looked at his third th- uh, argument, and it was a, a theological argument based upon a really important principle that we'll uh, revisit today. And that is this, just, to rem- just so we don't rem- uh, forget it, we want to remember this principle, that uh, our destiny as Christians is bound up in the destiny of Christ. That is such an important truth, and we'll really see more of that even today uh, as well. And when we looked at that, Paul gave us five guarantees that we have because Christ is the first fruits. Do you remember that? Such a great picture. Uh, He's the first fruits of those who rise from the dead, meaning he's a promise of more to come. Um, And because of that truth, we know that we will all be made alive. Because he rose and was made alive, we'll all uh, be made alive. Uh, Because he rose, we know that we are indeed his and that he is going to come back for us. Because he rose, we know that this earth will be restored to his rule. And when I say this earth, I really mean uh, earth, the new heaven, a new earth, the final state. He will rule completely and death will be defeated and all glory will go uh, to God. Those are massive guarantees that we have all because Christ rose from the dead. And today we're going to look at Paul's fourth and, and final argument against those who deny the resurrection. And it's really an argument from experience. It's an experiential uh, argument or an argument from example uh, or or testimony. And we'll kind of focus on that as we go through it. And while it is a small section, we're only looking at six verses today, it does contain some very rich and important uh, truths as well as one of the most difficult passages in all of the New Testament to understand and to properly interpret that has led to all kinds of confusion. Uh, and so we're going to uh, read through the passage today to begin with, and then we'll have to tackle that verse to start with just to make sure we, we know what we're talking about. So we're going to begin, we're looking at verses 29 to 34, but just uh, to keep some continuity, we'll start in verse 28. So look with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'll start reading from verse 28. Now, when all things are made subject to him, Then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead, if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in a manner of men... I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. What advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness 
and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Let's pray. God, we do come to you today thankful for your word, Lord, and and recognizing, uh, Lord, that we need your spirit to illuminate truth to us. Lord, we always need that. But, uh, Lord, especially today, as there's some difficult things here to to understand, to get our minds around, Lord, we just pray that the great truth teacher will be present, that you would guide us into truth. Lord, we we desire to know truth. We don't want to walk in untruth. We don't want to be confused about things. And, And so, Lord, that's our heart's desire today. And so, Lord, we know that you will be with us to present truth to us. So, Lord, uh, would you do that for us today? Guide us, direct us, all for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, you can probably see right off the bat what the controversial verse is. And I'm going to start with this one. It's verse 29. I'll just read it again. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? Now, this verse has, has caused all kinds of problems. I will tell you right now, in Christendom, it has uh, caused all kinds of false practices to uh, begin. It has created a quite, quite a bit of heresy. And if you begin to read even through commentaries, you can get up to about 200 explanations as to what this verse really means. And so uh, today we're going to try to come to a, a, a meaning, uh, an understanding of the verse, but I don't think we can be dogmatic about the exact meaning. And so I'm going to present uh, what I think it means today, but what I am going to take a great, great deal of time to do is to be dogmatic about something, and that is this, what it cannot mean because of where it has guided people. Because, because of this one verse, many have gone astray. And so I don't want anyone to have any confusion over this, and I'm going to spend some time talking about what it does not mean. This verse, verse 29, does not teach what is known as vicarious baptism or baptism by proxy, meaning a substitute baptism, someone who is baptized for another. It does not teach that. Uh, The ancient uh, Gnostics, uh, well-known ones like Marcion, uh, believed that. They spread this kind of heresy. The Mormons today, who are a cult, do practice this very same thing. Uh, In fact, interestingly enough, I spent a great deal of time studying Mormonism years ago. This particular chapter, chapter 15, is one of the chapters that has led them into a great deal of their heresy. Uh, They take a lot of these verses, and this is one of those verses. They take it the wrong way. So how can I stand here today and say... I know that Paul is not teaching vicarious baptism because I read it and it says, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? Why then are they baptized for the dead? How do we know Paul is not teaching baptism for the dead? A general principle of good exegesis, and exegesis is just a fancy way of saying Bible interpretation, okay? A general principle when you read through scripture is to take a verse or a word at face value. That is your general principle. Uh, We should always do that. The exception is when that uh, that understanding or that word of uh, understanding that word or phrase leads us to a conclusion that is contrary to the rest of Scripture. Then we must know that it is uh, not the right conclusion that we have reached. The idea that uh, a person uh, who has uh, already died uh, can be 
saved or, or helped by anyone living um, through, through something like baptism, that idea is unscriptural. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to present that to you today. And, and people will say, nope, just look at it by face value. It says here, Paul, Paul preaches it here, he teaches it here. And I would say, no, he doesn't teach it here because he preaches the exact opposite in many other places in Scripture. And so we must go to those places. So let me just begin with the idea that, it, that at its most uh, basic, the idea of baptism for the dead has a basic fundamental uh, uh, premise that is unscriptural. And that is, it's based on baptismal regeneration, or the idea that baptism is what saves you. It's based upon that understanding. People are baptizing themselves in the living for the dead in the hopes that it will save that person. The basic fundamental uh, principle is wrong. Baptism, even for living, does not save you. Baptism has, let me hear, let me just say it clearly, no part in salvation. Zero. You can be a Christian and not be baptized. You just won't be an obedient Christian, but you can be a Christian. Let me just begin by taking you to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. If you're in 1 Corinthians, go to 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and then there's Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to begin right in verse 1. This is a beautiful passage, and it is key, a key passage. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning of verse 1. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. And then these two very important words, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. Now, let's just take a quick look at what he's saying here. Verse 1, you're dead, <laughs> okay? You are dead, spiritually speaking. You're dead in your trespasses. Now, let me just ask you, how much can a dead person do? How, how many things have you seen a dead person do? Do they sneeze? Do they cough? Do they go pay bills? Do they, do they, n- nothing, right? That's the idea. A dead person can't do anything. You're dead spiritually. You can't do anything. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. He says, these people walked according to the world. They were sons of disobedience. And he says, we were that way too. So he's talking to Gentiles. He says, we were the same way. Me, Paul's saying that's of me. I was the same way. I was uh, dead, right? I was a child of wrath. That's your state. And then those two great words you should circle in verse four, but God, okay? God intervenes, who was rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead, okay, he made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see that? And so obviously, famously, well, he goes on for that, and he's raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, right? You were dead. You did nothing to earn anything. There's no salvation that comes from you, but, but because he came in and loved us, he raises us up and makes us live eternally with him. That's the, the future hope that you have. And, and famously in verse 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith. 
and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, this is a key fundamental passage of Scripture. If you are a new Christian and you begin learning Scripture, this is one of those go-to verses that you begin learning, right? You learn Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, right? You have to learn those things because they're fundamental, they're basic, they're foundational to Christian understanding of salvation, not by works. Why? Because you'd boast, he says, right? How does, how does grace, how does all this happen? It's through faith. It's through faith. Remember the whole idea of believing and receiving we talked about earlier a couple chapters ago, right? The Corinthian, there's some people who believe. They believe in God. Demons believe in God. The demons that walked this earth believed in Jesus. They knew exactly who he was. That didn't save them. They believed it and received it, right? It's that receiving part that, that's, that completes our faith. You believe in Christ. You receive that truth. You apply it to your life. That's your faith in him. And it is through that belief and receiving, through that faith, that salvation comes to you. It's by grace that you have been saved through faith. Now, don't you think if the the key element of your salvation was based on a work like baptism, I'm not even going to just say a work, let's just say baptism, okay, that Paul would have said somewhere in this wonderful passage, for by baptism you have been saved through faith. Or the other way, for by grace you have been saved through baptism. But you know what? He doesn't in either place. Now, students of the word in here, some of you are already going, oh, but I know Paul does talk about baptism in other places. You just haven't picked that verse. Oh, yeah? Not yet, but I'm going to right now. I'm going to take you right there. It's Galatians chapter 3. I want to cover all bases because I don't want anybody leaving here confused, okay? Galatians 3, 26. Now, don't worry about this verse. I have it up on the screen for you. Paul does use the word baptize or baptism in several places, but he uses it in a metaphorical sense. So look at this verse. This is one of those. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now just to stop and look at the verse. How are we sons of God according to that verse? Through faith in Christ. You see it? Verse 26. You are a son of God or a daughter of God through faith in Christ. Baptized here does not refer to water baptism. Paul uses it as a metaphor to speak of being immersed or placed into Christ. Do you remember? Our destiny is bound up in the destiny of Christ. Why? Because you have been united with him. We are one with Christ. That's the idea here. So because we've been placed into him or immersed into him, it's the same word, baptism, into Christ, we've been placed into him. It's through a a miraculous spiritual union that takes place, right? Um, And we're united in his death and we are united in his resurrection. Uh, That's all spiritual. It's all something that happens on the inside. There's nothing that you can see that makes that happen. And now, how do I know that he's speaking metaphorically here? Because earlier in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, this is what he said. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Now, as far as I know, Paul wasn't crucified. And he speaks about other Christians is here as well. I haven't been crucified. You haven't been crucified, right? Physically, but have you been crucified figuratively, spiritually speaking? Yes, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in Christ, or I live in the flesh, in, the, in uh, sorry, live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So not literally have I been crucified, Right? But I was, figuratively speaking, spiritually speaking, your old self was crucified, and now you have a new you. Now, why is there a 
new you. Why do you need to be new? That's part of being bound up in Christ. You're, you've been placed into him. You're in him, okay? He was uh, buried and rose to newness of life. So will you. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, in him, so you united with him, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So our baptism into Christ is a metaphor for being united with him. That's the whole idea there. The only way that anyone can come to Christ is through faith. What's the famous verse John 3.16 says? Whoever believes in him shall not perish. Jesus didn't say whoever is baptized into him shall not perish. Whoever believes in him shall not perish. So my point is this, that there's no work that we can, we can do, and that includes baptism, right, that can save us. Let me take you back to Titus 3, 4, and 5, which I read earlier. But when the kindness and the love of our God and Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, that would include baptism, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are people who go, see, but he's talking about washing and regeneration and renewing. Absolutely, he is. Washing and regeneration and renewing is all done by what? The Holy Spirit. <laughs> Do you see that? That's spiritual. Regeneration comes about when we place our faith and trust in Christ for forgiveness of sins. But let me just say, your faith cannot bring about regeneration of someone else. I can have all the faith in the world in the, in, and not pass it on to another. I have an unbelieving brother. I would love that my faith could be passed on to my unbelieving brother. But guess what? It won't. It's based on your faith. And so since my faith cannot save another, my baptism will certainly have no effect on anybody else. Does that make sense? We can't be baptized for the dead. Water baptism is simply an act of obedience to the Lord's command to be baptized. He's commanded us to do that. Where is that command found? Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's a command straight from the lips of Jesus. Now, why did he command that? This is what's so fascinating about it, okay? It is the way a Christian proclaims identity with Christ. How do you know? someone has truly been regenerated. We really have no, no proof. In fact, the only thing that Jesus could say was, you'll know them by their fruits, right? Remember he said that? You'll know them by their fruits. How will you really know someone? You'll start to see fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit should begin to manifest itself in someone's life. But other than that, you don't get some sort of mark on the forehead, right? You don't get some of like passport stamp. You don't get anything like that. It's like this person is officially uh, saved. I could never give that to somebody, right? I've heard of people doing that, like, this person is I would. I, I don't know. But there is one that knows, and that is the Lord. So why do we do baptism? Well, that's the, the symbolic way that we sort of um, identify, identify with Christ and make it known to everybody else. It's through immersion. It symbolizes our union with Christ into his death and resurrection. Romans 6, 3 and 4. Or do you not know... That as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Now, this is still Paul speaking, so here's another place where he uses this word baptize, and here he still is not speaking about water baptism. We're talking about spiritually. 
Okay? We were baptized, immersed into Christ Jesus, and because we were, we were immersed into his death. You're dead in him, remember? Therefore, as we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Do you see that? You can't take this literally because none of you, as I know, were buried with him. But people still go, no, this is water baptism. Well, I hope, were you buried at some point then? Is someone like heap mounds of dirt upon you? No, okay? We're symbolically buried with him through baptism into death, immersed into his death. And therefore, we know we will walk in newness of life. Colossians 2.12, another passage by Paul that uses this. We're buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Again, we're united with him. Water baptism is simply symbolic of that union. No one is saved through baptism, living or dead. In fact, how do we officially know all this? Well, once you die, you pass from this life and on, it is too late. Now, that is a serious truth we have to, we have to recognize. Scripture makes it clear in Hebrews 9, 27. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. There is nothing else that awaits an unbeliever after this life other than judgment. It is too late at that point. Hebrews here does not tell us that there is a waiting place, a, a place of purgatory, a place where you can pay uh, penance and, and hope for some sort of good work to work off the bad and hopefully get enough good works. It's not by works that you are saved. In fact, if you die, judgment is all you have to look forward to. We also know this because Jesus told a very amazingly um, graphic, somewhat troubling parable about the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. And there you have a, a rich man and a poor man, Lazarus, a beggar, and they both die. Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom, which is, is rather than get too deep into it, is, is just, let's say, paradise for that time, okay? He's, he's in the, the, the place of paradise, but, but the rich man goes to Hades, and they can see one another, but they're separated by a great gulf. And the rich man in Hades is being tormented, and he begs Abraham. So Abraham sort of figuratively is present or not. He says, could you just get me some, some cool water? Let me dip my tongue in. He says, listen, you know, you had your good life. This is the life you chose. Uh, Lazarus had, a, had a, a bum rap, right, on earth. But now he's being rewarded. And so he says, in addition to that, did you notice this great gulf that separates us? He says, there's a separation here. He says, no one from your side can come here. And no one from here can go there. He says, so you're, you're stuck there, pal, is basically what he says. So then he tries a new tactic. He says, well, I have brothers, and I don't want them to experience this, so would you, would you just send Lazarus back, right, to go and warn them? And Abraham says, no, they have the scriptures. Let them read Moses and the prophets. And he says, no, that won't work. I know one's going to believe that, the Bible. Why don't you send Lazarus back from the dead? They'll believe if someone rose from the dead. And his answer is, he's like, no. They have the prophets. They have the scriptures. They don't believe that. They will not believe a person even if he rose from the dead. Jesus tells that parable. And guess what? He was darn right because people don't believe today, and he rose from the dead. But you can see he gives us a graphic description. It was too late for the rich man. He tried everything. He's like, oh, could you just give me some? I cannot relieve your, 
your, your pain. There's nothing I can do. There's a gulf that separates us. And yet, we still come up with this idea today that we can save people who have passed away before us. That's not what Paul teaches here. It's not consistent with Scripture. I also don't think that, that he's referring to some in the church who are practicing vicarious baptism or, or, or that he's trying to correct that because that is a major, major doctrinal error, and I think he would have uh, hit that early on, and I think that would be uh, something you hear more about in other places as he writes to a whole second letter to Corinthians. I don't think that's what's happening here. We also know that that practice of baptism for the dead was more a second century thing that came along, which would be a lot later, so I don't think that's what's happening here. So let's get to it. What is he saying? What in the world are these verses about? Let's finally get back and a look at that, but I wanted to make sure you understood what it wasn't. It doesn't teach vicarious baptism. Look at the verse again. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? In the New Testament, water baptism is closely associated with salvation, isn't it? When you read the New Testament, you come across all kinds of passages that, that put that close with salvation. And that is re- the reason is because in the early church, a person who was saved was assumed to have been baptized, right? And a person was not baptized unless a true profession of faith had been made. So let me just give you a couple examples. You don't have to turn. I'm just going to read through a bunch of examples in Acts. Water baptism or immersion in, in Acts, the early church, was always accompanied by faith in Christ. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's great sermon in Jerusalem, in verse 38, he said this, Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. So he said, repent and then be baptized. What happened? Verse 41 tells us what happened. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. They received the word and then they were baptized. That's Acts chapter 2, 38 and 41. Acts chapter 8, verse 12, we come to Philip, the great evangelist. Get to it here. It says, um, let me get the right verse here. But when they, they, they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. So they believed Philip, they believed what he preached about the kingdom of God, and then they were baptized. Again, in verses 35 to 37, uh, the famous um, Ethiopian, Ethiopian uh, eunuch that he gets the opportunity to, uh, to preach to. In verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and beginning at, his, at the scripture, preached Jesus to him. And as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So you see the belief came first and then baptism second. In chapter 10 of Acts, verses 47 to 48, can anyone forbid water? that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have, Peter says about the Gentiles who had obviously received the Holy Spirit. So he knew that was evidence of their true saving faith. He says, well, should we baptize them now? Because they've made a profession of faith. All through the New Testament, baptism, baptize meant that you were saved. It didn't save you, but when he said that, it meant that they were saved because it was assumed that they had already made the profession of faith. Does that make sense? That's just as you read through the New Testament. So Paul is using that idea, testimony, as an argument in this passage. The dead that Paul is speaking about, I believe here, and I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, are dead Christians, dead believers. 
people whose testimony have led to the salvation of others. And baptism is simply synonymous for salvation here because new Christians were always being baptized. So I believe Paul is saying this, that people were being saved or baptized by uh, being the sign because of the testimony and faithful witness of believers who have died. Again, we can't be dogmatic about that interpretation, but it doesn't do any injustice to the passage. It fits well with Paul's, the continuing argument about testimony throughout this. So if that's the case, I'm going to go with this outline. I think this preaches resurrection incentives. Resurrection incentives. Incentives because Jesus rose from the dead. And the first incentive is an incentive for salvation. Look at that verse 29 now from that perspective. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? Paul's saying, what about the new Christians who just got baptized? Okay, what about them? Why are they getting baptized and following these others who have died if, if they're not going to rise again? If there's no resurrection, right? There's no incentive for salvation because there's no hope for life after this. Now, you just have to look through church history to see that this is true. Many people have come to faith in Christ because of the faithful witness and testimony of other men and women. You think of the the spiritual greats. You think of Martin Lloyd-Jones and and D.L. Moody, right? Evangelists like Billy uh, Graham, John Wesley. You preachers like Charles Spurgeon, R.C. Sproul, these people who have died before us, right? People have come to faith. Even now, those guys are long dead. Even now they come to faith based on those men's testimony and faithful witness. People are being baptized today. That happens today. What will they do who are baptized for the dead or because of the dead? That word for can even be because of that, because of the dead. If the dead don't rise, why are people doing it? Why are people still coming to the faith if there's no such thing as resurrection of the dead? But there is a resurrection. There's a great incentive for others to be saved as well. There's an incentive for salvation. Now, let me quickly say as well that, that I'm not saying we blindly follow men. It's not just people who just blindly follow men, right? These men faithfully follow Christ, and people have trusted in the truth that they preached according to Scripture. And these men trusted in the oath and promises of God. Those two things are important, oath and promises of God. They come to us from Hebrews chapter 6. And I bring this verse because this is... Uh, called the anchor of the soul, the hope that's brought up in here. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 18 to 19. He says this, that by two immutable or unchangeable things, those two things are God's oath and God's promises, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, in which enters the, the presence behind the veil. This hope that we have of the resurrection of of eternal life is based upon not the oaths of men. I don't base it upon what men have told me. It's based upon the oaths and promises of God. We just looked at all that. God's faithfulness, right? His mercies are new every morning. That's one of the hopes that, that just leads us to him. You know another hope that a lot of people find is the hope of being reunited with loved ones. Isn't that a hope that a lot of people have? David had that hope when he lost his infant son. Remember, he said, he's dead. You know, he's gone and he's not coming back to him. But, but what did David say? But I will go to him. See, David knew that he would be reunited with his infant son one day. And we do. We have that hope to be reunited with others who have passed on before us. That's a, a great hope that we have. But I think Paul's first point is this. If there's no resurrection, 
Why are people coming to faith in Christ because of the testimony of believers who have died and they have no hope of resurrection? There, there's no life after this. Why would, that, why would that be? There's really no incentive for salvation. The second, I think, incentive that the resurrection belief brings is an incentive for sacrificial service. Look at verses 30 and 32. Well, was, uh, 30 and 31. Why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. Now, Paul first mentions we. We stand in jeopardy every hour or in danger is what he means. Who are the we? He's speaking about believers. Believers do. Christians throughout the centuries have worked hard for the Lord Jesus Christ, and they have been willing to suffer abuse and ridicule and torture and, and death. Why? Why all those things? Because of, of Christ's own supreme finished work. He died, but he rose again. We've been redeemed, and we know that it, it will last past this life. We're not just redeemed for this life. Our redemption is to take us into the hope of eternal life. And so Christians should take lightly the sufferings that come in this life. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, 18. He says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We, we, we can't even compare it. That's why Christians all through, all through the centuries have been willing to suffer and to sacrifice for him because he rose from the dead. And Paul himself, he knew about suffering. Look, he makes it even personal. He says, I, I die daily. And he affirms that, that oath. You might have a translation that says, I protest. Uh, it's, a, it's a little Greek word, nay, that's only used here. It's a, it's a particle that's employed only in an affirmation of an oath. He's affirming an oath. He's saying, I take an oath. I die daily. I suffer all the time. And what's his oath affirmed with? This phrase, by the boasting in which I have in Christ Jesus, in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you know anything about Paul, and, and we went through the prayers of Paul, Mark, and I, and the, and the men reading through the book, Paul loves the church, and he loved rejoicing and boasting in the church and in the people. And he says, basically, that's my oath, right? Be, just as I boast and rejoice in the church, I will boast and rejoice and say, I die daily. I suffer. I now gladly suffer for those things because he loves the church. And in 1 Thessalonians, he rejoiced in them. And in chapter 2, verse 19, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Just as sure as Paul gloried in the church or in, in new converts, Paul was ready to die under the persecutions and afflictions that accompanied the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4 to 5, he said this, but in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in, in fastings. I mean, that's a lot, of, a lot of suffering there, sacrificial service. What would, what would convince a person to go through that kind of life unless the resurrection were real? In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you want to turn there, Paul, Paul gives a massive list of all that he endured. And I'm just going to remind you, Paul, Paul did not enjoy or know the easy, comfortable life many Christians know. Like, I, I enjoy a pretty comfortable life here, right? I don't, I, I'm not in fear of daily, you know, torture or scourgings, right? But, but Paul was. It happened all the time. 
He says in verse 24 of 2 Corinthians, from the, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. You ever seen the passion of the Christ? The scourging is the worst scene in the whole movie. Happens once to Jesus, 39 lashes. Paul says five times that happened to him. He must have looked like hamburger. You know what I mean? He, horrible. Then three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of, of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. And see, there it is again, Right? his love and concern for the churches. Paul goes on in our passage in verse 32. Look what he says. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we, we die. This is interesting. Is Paul referring to an arena experience here? I mean, it sort of like brings up the gladiator, right? I mean, do you envision Paul here saying, you know, are you not entertained? You know, like, I, I don't know if that's, some people believe it, that Paul was probably in an arena with beasts. Well, it's not recorded anywhere, but it certainly could have, could have happened. I think he's probably being figuratively, figuratively here. Paul was a Roman citizen, so he's probably not likely thrown to wild beasts. They would have had a different execution for him. I think it might be speaking metaphorically about the crowd in Ephesus that was um, incited against him. By Demetrius the silversmith, you read about it in Acts 19, you remember that? Demetrius made the little silver Diana goddess statues, and Paul's preaching against the goddess of Diana, and well, that's going to hurt his livelihood. So Demetrius, you know, brings the whole city up against Paul. But anyway, whatever he's referring to, he is referring to a suffering. And he says, if in the manner of men or from a human motive, I fight with wild beasts, what advantage do I gain from, from that, right? If the dead don't rise, why? Why would I want to endure that, right? If this life is all there is, why on earth would I go through something like that? Instead, he says, I, sh I should just adopt the mindset of the, the Epicurean philosophers and pursue pleasure. That's what he says, right? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That, that should be my mindset. Why suffer? Why go through these things? If the dead don't rise, you guys just live it up, right? Satisfy the flesh. I think many Christians, to be honest, live, practically speaking, as if there is no resurrection. Living it up, right? They wouldn't confess to you that they don't believe in the resurrection, but their lifestyle reflects a lifestyle that doesn't believe in the resurrection. Like, this is all there is. I mean, folks, th this isn't all there is. In fact, our real life is coming. These people want comfy, cozy lives that's free from inconvenience. Forget pain and tribulations, just inconvenience. <laughs> I don't want to be inconvenienced, right? And it happens in churches all the time, and I'm, I'm happy to say it doesn't ever happen in this church. But you have like, you know, I don't like the, the, the music. And oh, the, the, this is too loud. And oh, the coffee wasn't great. I'm just inconvenienced. It just makes me kind of go like, where, where is your life? Like, what are you really thinking about? Is it about this life or is it about the life to come? It's the resurrection that provides the proper incentive for sacrificial service. And, you know, we are willing and ready to sacrifice as believers because of the resurrection, because we know there's a life to come. And but if this life is all there is, then I think Joel Olstein is right. Uh, this is your best life now. And so you might as well live it up. Listen, guys, 
if the resurrection is an incentive to holy uh, living, then we should live, um, or sorry, to suffering, I'm giving away the next point, uh, to suffering, then we should realize that that was the same thing for Christ. Did you know that the resurrection was his incentive for going to the cross? It was. It was anticipation of it being raised. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The anticipation of being resurrected and, and put back in a place of glory with his father was his motivation to die on that cross for you, to suffer for you. Should not our motivation be the same, to be, to be willing to suffer? Because this life is not all there is. The greatest life is to come. Finally, the third incentive is an incentive for sanctification or, or holy living. Look at verse 33. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Now, this phrase isn't actually a biblical phrase. You say, well, it is because it's here. Well, okay, in that sense, it is. <laughs> But Paul is, is quoting a phrase that was a, a, a common use at the time, but it was made popular by a pagan author named Menander, okay? He's just putting this phrase down. Evil company, generally, corrupts good habits, right? The, the bad apple spoils the barrel, right, idea. And I think Paul uses it here as a subtle warning against associations with those who would teach such a dangerous doctrine as there's no resurrection because this is what Paul's correcting, right? They're associating with those kind of people. Evil company or associations can lead to corrupting our habits so that we're not living holy lives. People who think wrongly behave wrongly. Right? There's a root systemic problem there. Wrong behavior always comes from wrong thinking, wrong beliefs, wrong standards. Associating regularly with people of wrong belief then can inevitably corrupt our own belief, right? So we've got to be very, very careful. And earlier, Paul compared the immorality in the church uh, to the yeast and the bread. You might remember that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 6. He said, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you're truly unleavened. Well, I think he, he quotes Menander here to the same, same effect, right? You need to purge it out because some of you are being, you're being deceived, he says. Don't be deceived. He says you need to wake up. In fact, that's what he says in verse 34. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. Awake, he says. Eknepho is the word. It's to return to oneself from drunkenness or to become sober. The the Corinthians needed to be sober-minded is what he's calling them to. Hoping in the resurrection is an incentive to holiness and obedience. But disbelief in the resurrection, that's just an incentive to immorality. Like he had said earlier, let us eat and drink because tomorrow we die. I've got nothing else to live for. So he calls them back. Here he says, do not sin for some do not have the knowledge of God. They were like those that Paul mentioned back in chapter eight. Remember when he said, uh, if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he doesn't know anything as he ought to know. Remember that? Right? They were listening to people who wrongly believed um, that they had knowledge. We have knowledge. There's no such thing as a resurrection. We know better than that. How silly. Only infants believe in such a thing as a resurrection. They start buying into this I- idea. And Paul says they don't have knowledge. Right? Some don't have knowledge. And I, I speak this to your shame. It is to their shame because you go way back to chapter 1. What did the Corinthians glory in? Their knowledge. Right? 
their wisdom, the philosophy, all of those things. No, I speak this to your shame. They had bad theology, and Paul likened it to not having any knowledge at all. Do you think doctrine matters? (laughs) It does. They had the truth, but they didn't fully believe it. And so Paul says, I speak this to your shame. Listen, knowing that our salvation will become fully realized at our resurrection, you know, that's the incentive that we need for for holy living. And I just want to close by taking you to Romans chapter 13. I have it on the screen here for you, but this is just such a, really rounds it up, gives us the right picture here. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to wake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. It goes on in verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. That's exactly what that verse is talking about, right? We, we know that the, the time is short. This life is not all there is. And especially this year, have we not looked around a bit to say, wake up, people, right? And, and I think some people in the world are waking up, right? It's like why some numbers in churches are, are going up. People are going, eh, something's, something's not right. It's high time to awake out of your sleep. Salvation's nearer than ever before. But what's, what's that to, to propel us towards? Holy living. Right? Not to just abandon and live it up. Oh, it's almost here, so let's, like, let's just go take it all in. No, no, no. It should be the opposite. It should push us to Christ. That means, hold on, if Jesus is coming soon and he's been preparing a place for me, remember the bride and groom thing from last week? What's the, what's the bride's job? Make herself ready. So my goal is not to go live it up. Uh, let me spend the last few days in revelry. I only got a few days left to like make myself looking good for Christ, right? You don't know when he's coming back, folks. And he wants to find a purified bride. That's what the church is doing here now. And so knowing that he's coming back, knowing the resurrection is true, knowing all those things, you see how Paul's pulled all this together? That's an incentive for holy living. It's an incentive for people to even getting saved, knowing that this life is all there is. How do religions even build when they say, well, this is all there is, but hey, you know, we give you free carrot cake. Like, I don't understand, right? This, there's more to come. The best is yet to come. And it's also an incentive to live sacrificially. We are not promised an easy, comfortable life. Many in the Western church have enjoyed that, but things have gotten harder, and it's not been easy, has it? But guess what? What's your incentive to get through that, to persevere through that? Resurrection. Guys, this is not all there is. Lift up our eyes and say hallelujah, right? He's coming back. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us. We thank you for the rich truths that your word brings to us. And Lord, concerning verse 29, I recognize it's, it's your holy word. Your Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write it. You know ultimately what was meant by that, and I know that you wouldn't purposely lead us astray. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just use this time to, Lord, Lord just really help us to see, um, Lord, what it doesn't mean. <laughs> that we wouldn't be led into false beliefs and false practices and heresies, that we would stand firm on the truth of the gospel, which has always been the same message, that salvation is by grace through faith. That is it. It's not by works. We don't do anything to contribute. Otherwise, we'd glory in ourselves. So, Lord, we glory in you. We praise you for salvation. 
the gift of life that you bring to us. You are a good God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll stand and sing a closing song.